Before we get started, a quick note for our listeners that this episode discusses suicide as a topic of an article that our guest investigated recently. If this is a topic that is problematic for you, we totally understand if you want to skip and join us for our next episode. If you do listen, at the end, we will list some resources that are available for anyone who might need them. This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hart, and I'm here with Adam Japshow. Hello. Our guest today is Cheryl Rich Kern, who has more than 35 years of experience as a writer, editor, and producer. Her work has appeared on New Hampshire Public Radio, in Business NH Magazine, and in many other Granite State News Collaborative partner publications. She is also a journalism instructor at the collegiate level. Thank you for joining us today, Cheryl. Yeah, happy to be here. Cheryl, could you describe for us, just to get started here, uh, what attracted you to journalism in the first place and what your career in the industry has looked like? Well, I think I'm somebody that loves asking a lot of questions. I think that's how I get to know people not just to tell them about myself. I like hearing about other people's stories. And I think to be a good journalist, you need to be curious and persistent. I think those are two qualities uh, my friends and family would tell you that I have. Uh, well, that's great. So how did, how is your, um, what does your career look like? You know, I've had sort of a reverse rickety trajectory into journalism. I I began using my writing skills in the corporate world as a marketing and PR uh, specialist for a few different high-tech firms. I mean, a lot of times journalists will start out, you know, working at a city beat and sometimes later move into PR. I kind of did the reverse. Um, I was writing brochures, white papers, speeches, customer profiles. I produced promotional videos. Um, I later freelanced for those organizations in addition to writing for some trade publications on and the freelancing world, which wasn't as, weren't really in a gig economy so much in the 80s, but in the 90s, after I had kids, uh, it, it worked really well for me. And somewhere around 2005, I was commuting into Boston, where I worked part-time for a nonprofit, writing campaign materials and newsletters. And the drive was really long, and I would you know, always be listening to NPR and hearing the stories, and it would like get me thinking, like, what do I really want to do? I mean, the epiphany was, like, it wasn't really fundraising, but I really wanted to get into journalism. It was, you know, I had dabbled in it a little bit before, but I was not as engrossed in it as I am now. And I just thought like, I can do that. You know, I can, I can write these kinds of stories. So I called the news director at New Hampshire Public Radio and I sent him some writing pieces and I asked him, would he be willing to teach me how to do the audio production? Because that was something I knew nothing about. And I think it was just hit it at the right time because he said he was looking for a correspondent for Nashua. I live in Nashua. And at the time, this is not their um, paradigm now, but the way NHPR worked back then, this would be around 2005, 2006, 
you know, they had a few reporters that worked full time, but they also had correspondents around the state. And so after learning the audio production, I became their correspondent for, for Nashua. And I did that for maybe 10, 10 years or so. I mean, they're no, no longer using stringers, so I'm not affiliated with them anymore. But at the same time, I started writing for Business New Hampshire magazine. I think I wrote for New Hampshire Business Review. And I also continued freelancing for some trade publications. I had to go look at my resume to remember what some of the name of some of them uh, were. Uh, one of them was Diversity Careers in Engineering, where I would profile uh, different engineering professionals who you know, represented either people of color, you know, um, people from other marginalized communities. So that's kind of how I got into being a journalist in New Hampshire. And then when Granite State News Collaborative launched, you know, I joined its group of, of freelancers. It seems that you've really embraced freelancing as an opportunity. Could you tell me how you think about that arrangement and why it's the right arrangement for you? Well, why it's the right arrangement for me may not be the right arrangement for other people. I'm involved in a lot of different things. You know, I, I, I volunteer as a chairperson of programming at my synagogue, and, and we just had this fantastic program yesterday. I hike a couple of times a week. I, I also chair this interfaith commission on Holocaust, Holocaust remembrance. I'm a hospice volunteer. I have a dog. I like to do different things, but I don't think it's right for everybody. It's not necessarily great money. You know, you, you get paid per story and it's not necessarily a way to make a living if you're first starting out. But for me, I'm in my 60s. It, it works for me right now. It sounds like it gives you a lot of opportunity to explore in different directions, depending on um what's available to you at any moment. Yes, absolutely. I'm interested in hearing about a story you published uh, earlier this fall about gun shops and suicide prevention. Could you tell us how that story came, how that story idea came to you and what it was about the story that intrigued you? Well, when Melanie, the editor for Granite State News Collaborative, she put out an email saying that uh, the collaborative was going to cover some stories about guns. And I mentioned to her that about 10 years ago, I had done a story that really had the same theme, guns and suicide, where I, I wrote about the gun shop project. And how I came up with that idea 10 years ago, I really don't remember. But I had done a story about it, but it and it was a radio story where I had gone to a gun shop, I had interviewed a gun shop owner. What I came away with then I don't really know much about the culture of guns. It's never been in my family. Nobody in my family hunts. Um, it was an unfamiliar world to me. Um, meeting that gun shop owner, I walked away thinking, you know, he's really a nice guy. He really cares about safety and suicide prevention. I think when you work on stories, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about journalism is you get to hear other points of view. It's our job as journalists to pre uh, present balance and not just give opinions. So 
that was eye-opening to me. So when I sent Melanie a link to that story from 10 years ago, thankfully it was still on the, on the internet, and she said, why don't you do an update on it? Well, I have to tell you, doing an update on it was much harder than the story I did 10 years ago because, well, it was hard to get gun shop owners to talk to me. Maybe because, who knows why, but I'll tell you one one little story about trying to get, you know, sorry, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. There's one of the things I talk about in that story is a training module that was developed for pediatricians to get pediatricians and other primary care providers um, trying to get them, give them guidance on how to talk to parents about guns rather than just saying, we don't think you should have guns in the house. If you have guns in the house, let me talk to you about safety. So one of the firearm safety instructors that was, he was a critical component of this training course. His name was Tom Brown. He's the safety instructor at the uh, Manchester firing line. So I emailed him and I said, I wanted to interview him for the story. And he said to me, he expressed his reservation about talking to reporters, which really set a tone for everybody else I tried to talk to after that. He said, well, I only want to talk to you if you'll come to the firing range and shoot. And that was just not something I wanted to do. I didn't see this story. It's not going on 60 Minutes. I didn't see myself being Diane Sawyer and having a video of me, you know, putting on safety glasses and going out on the shooting range. The story is about suicide prevention, not about whether or not I'm willing to shoot a gun or whether or not I think anybody should have a gun. That's not what the story was about. So we went back and forth for a while and he eventually, I just, I wasn't able to talk to him. I wasn't going to adhere to his demands. So I called about a dozen, a dozen gun shop owners and most of them would not speak to me. And what I came to realize was it wasn't that they just didn't want to be interviewed. They were just, they're wary of journalists because, you know, we've had all these massive shootings. People are, are putting blame on, on gun shops. But I did eventually find two that would talk to me. Um, so it, it, it took a long time to write that story. You, you did find a couple that were willing to talk to you. Do you think it was just luck in spinning the wheel as, as often as you needed to, to hit on that lucky number? Or did you try something different with those two that, that broke through? I don't think I tried anything different. I think it was very persistent. The way I approached it for this story was I sent emails um, and gave them context and also a link to the previous story I had done. And I did that so that when I called, they just didn't hang up on me. So they would at least have some background. And I also, you know, I looked at their individual websites to see if they were a full service shop. I looked for places that might also offer safety training classes because I felt those were shops that, you know, care about safety and, and want to communicate to their, you know, to their patrons and their employees. You did find a couple of shops that were willing to uh, participate in the story. Could you tell me how you went about 
collecting their perspectives. Did you did you go into the shops themselves, or was it a, a phone inter interview? And, I did. Uh, a Zoom. Yeah, you did a Zoom Zoom interview. I I did Zoom interviews. Yeah. And what was that like? Was it were they um, open and forthcoming, or were they still reserved? Well, the um, Buddy Hackett. I always laugh when I say that name because I think of the comic from the Catskills. Um, but <laughs> his name is Buddy Hackett. He was very open, very open and very committed. And he has a master's in social work. So he was my first interview. That was an easy interview. He talked a lot. He talked about how much he cared about suicide prevention. That was a pretty easy interview. The guy at Granite State Indoor Range that was a little more difficult. I had to persist to get him. I had to repeatedly call and, and email him. But the connection there was that, if you remember in the story, I talk about the collaboration between the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I asked my contact at the National Shooting Sports Foundation who in New Hampshire was displaying their materials. And that contact pointed me to the Granite State Indoor Range. So I had a little bit of an in there to say, hey, you know, I hear that you're actually displaying the suicide prevention materials that the association provides. I'd like you to tell me about that. So that's how I got an interview. Hearing that persistence is uh, a key theme here, as you stated at the top, um, do you find that in general when you kind of run into some of these more challenging assignments where people are reluctant to talk, persistence is the way that you get through? Absolutely. And just maybe trying to connect with them some other way, you know, just to find some commonality, talk about their kids, their, you know, whatever, just try to be a nice person and present yourself in a way that's welcoming. What did you learn through this investigation? And was there anything that surprised you? I was surprised at how committed the National Shooting Sports Foundation was to suicide prevention. But in thinking about it more, why shouldn't they be? They have to care. They really have to care because we have to do something about this. The other thing that surprised me I knew that a lot of gun deaths were suicides. I did not know the extent of it in New Hampshire. Now in New Hampshire, we don't have a lot of, we don't have high numbers for homicides in general. And I don't, I'd have to go look at the article again. Let's say it was something around 120 gun deaths, something like that. 91% of them were suicides. That's a shocking number, just a shocking number. It's painful because a lot of those deaths could be prevented because as some of the people say in the article, thoughts of suicide are usually fleeting, but the method matters. And if the method is a gun, it's usually fatal. You can't change your mind. And that's, I mean, that's what happened. You know, you, you read about the mother that I interviewed who, who lost her son. Now she, she talked to me a lot. I think she was processing her grief and, 
went off on a lot of different tangents and she communicated to me that she was aware that her son had guns and she was very uncomfortable about it. He had mental health problems that wasn't new and she did not want him to have guns, but there wasn't any way that she, you know, he was an adult that she could take those guns away from him. Coincidentally, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in New Jersey and she's a therapist. And she said that in New Jersey, if someone lands at the emergency room because of an attempted suicide, there's a law that says that the police or, or maybe some other type of first responder needs to go to the home and see if there are guns and take those guns away. We don't have anything close to that in New Hampshire. I'm interested to see um, what your perspective is on the journalism industry in New Hampshire. Uh, how have you seen the journalism industry change over the course of your career? And then here's the real, uh, real unfair question. Do you have a sense of where it's going? Yeah, I have a few thoughts about that. On one hand, I'm worried about the journalism industry. I, I'm worried about the consumers of news. Because as you know, I mean, the ability to propagate misinformation is just astounding. It's, it's just too easy for citizen journalists, like on Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and probably some other platforms I haven't even heard of yet, you know, to spread these falsehoods. And not everybody has the media literacy skills to weed out fat, facts from feelings or opinions, whereas like... In, an, in a media outlet, you know, there are checks and balances. We have editors that ensure s stories have to meet standards. Uh, you know, there's, there's fact checking that, that goes on. And then the other worry is that, you know, the financial grounding of media outlets, I, you know, we used to have advertising supported newspapers, and now we've got digital advertising on giant tech companies like Meta, Google, Amazon, I mean, not to mention Craigslist, they've, they've killed the re revenue streams for local newspaper ads. And then the other thing I worry about, I live in Nashua, we have the Nashua Telegraph. The Telegraph was locally owned for, I don't know how many years, could be 100 years, 80 years, I, I'm not really sure. A West Virginia company bought out the Telegraph and, and the staff is really thin. So the local public is, you know, missing out on important information about public safety, about who's on the school board, you know, who's running for aldermen. So we lose the glue that holds, you know, these local communities together. You know, we lose a re representation of different perspectives. So I worry about that. But on the other hand, so let me be a little bit more positive. I feel like there's hope because philanthropy is stepping in to fill that financial gap. You know, I've read studies, I don't know if they're all true, but I'm going to have to do more research on this, that more foundations, philanthropists, and donors are supporting local news than in the past. And, you know, we see that in New Hampshire, the Granite State News Collaborative is a nonprofit. It's funded by various philanthropic organizations. Same with In-Depth New Hampshire, same with the New Hampshire Bulletin, I think, which has only been around for a year. So if we have more, you know, if the trend continues in philanthropy to support journalism, I think there's hope. But if not, we're, we're in trouble. Are you working on anything else that you'd like to preview? 
Yeah, I'm writing an article. I haven't started actually writing it. I should say I'm in the researching stage so I can learn more about it. This is for Business New Hampshire magazine. I've been asked to look at not so much about pricing about uh, electricity and gas, but supply issues, you know, what's being done to diversify our energy sources, what various policy experts think should be done to ensure we have a future, you know, an energy future. There was talk a, a while ago, although now they're saying we don't need to worry so much, but the state is potentially facing winter brownouts. So what are we going to do about that? So that's, it's not a topic. I've never had an energy beat. It's not a topic I know a lot about. So I'm trying to read up as much as I can before I actually reach out to the people I need to interview so that I, so that I can ask intelligent questions. So that's what I'm working on right now. All right. Well, that sounds very interesting. I also wanted to ask you, Cheryl, if you have any advice for anyone who might be interested in getting involved in journalism, um, whether that's through the radio, through uh, print writing, or even freelancing, what advice would you have for them? I would say go to a small market where there's a need. It's hard to break into a big market. I'm not really sure if New Hampshire is considered a small market. In some ways, not so much because we're a small state and we have New Hampshire Public Radio, so there's only one public radio station. Um, covering the whole state, uh, but go, go to a small market, get a job with a, a, a newspaper or a media outlet, uh, be willing to intern, be willing to maybe work for free for a while, which I hate saying that because I don't think it's, it, it, I don't think it's really right, but that's just the way it is in journalism. Um, pound the pavement, be persistent. There's that persistence again. Any other questions? I, I think that's all of our questions. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us, Cheryl? And that's always how I end an interview. <laughs> I always say, are there any question, other questions I should have asked you or anything else you would like to tell me? I often find when I ask that question, I get the best, best quotes, yeah. but I'm not sure I have a comeback for that one. I'm glad you're doing this, these podcasts. Thank you. I, I wasn't aware of it. So I don't really have anything else to add. Well, I very much appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. Very nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. I hope we get to meet in person one day. Absolutely. All right. All right. Well, take care. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, reach out to someone you trust, or use national resources like calling 988 or texting 988, or using the website nh988.com, or if you're in New Hampshire, call 833-710-6477. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlon Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.